This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Oh, thank you, and welcome to the show. Phil Harris and Alice Faye will kick off tonight's entertainment. Their show, a comedy radio program which ran on NBC from 1948 to 1954, evolved from an earlier music and comedy variety program, The Fitch Bandwagon. Singer band leader Phil Harris and his wife, actress singer Alice Faye, became the early show's breakout stars, and the show was retooled into a full situation comedy, with Harris and Faye playing fictionalized versions of themselves as a working show business couple, raising two daughters in a slightly madcap home. Since 1936, Harris had been a comedic mainstay and music director for the Jack Benny program. Faye had been a frequent guest on programs such as Rudy Valley's. In 46, they were invited to co-host the Fitch Bandwagon, a musical variety and comedy show that had been a Sunday night fixture on NBC since 1938. The growing popularity of the Harris-Faye family sketches turned the program into their own comic vehicle by 1947. And when announcer Bill Foreman hailed good health to all from Rexall on October 3rd, 1948, the Phil Harris-Alice-Faye show launched its independent life under Rexall's sponsorship, with a debut storyline about the fictitious day the couple signed their sponsorship deal. Now, the show was a quick success, and its position in that powerhouse NBC Sunday night lineup didn't hurt. Playing themselves as radio and music star parents of two precocious young daughters, played by actresses Janine Roos and Anne Whitfield instead of Harris's own young daughters, Harris refined his character from the booze and broads hipster jive talker he'd been on the Benny show into a slightly more vain, particularly about his wavy hair and the dimpled smile that always hinted mischief, and dunderheaded husband who usually needed rescuing by Faye as his occasionally tart but always loving wife. References to hair and vanity became a running gag. Harris's radio character was also scripted as an occasional language in context mangler, six parts Gracie Allen and a half dozen parts Yogi Berra. And an interesting note about Alice Faye as a serious actress. In 1940, she played one of her most important and memorable roles, the title role of the music biopic Lillian Russell. Faye always named this film as one of her favorites, but it was also one of her most challenging roles. The tight corsets that she wore for this picture caused her to collapse on the set several times. And now, on to tonight's show. Good health to all from Rexall. It's the Bill Harris Alice Bay Show, presented by the makers of Rexall drug products and 10,000 independent Rexall family druggists. Good health to all from Rexall. And now your Rexall family druggist brings you the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Anne Whitfield, Walter Sharp and his music, yours truly, Bill Foreman, and starring Alice Faye and Phil Harris. <laughs> Mr. Scott of Rexall has asked Phil to call the band together so that he might address them on a matter of importance. It must be very important, for Mr. Scott has been talking to the boys for over two hours. And as we look in, he is just finishing his speech. And in conclusion, gentlemen, I'd like to say that any resemblance between you and musicians is not only accidental, but downright malicious. <laughs> now then, are there any questions? Yeah, how are you? <laughs> I'm Mr. Scott. 
I represent the 10,000 independent Rexall dealers who pay for this program, and I'm here to see that you do your best for Rexall. Now, any other questions? What's a Rexall? You <laughs> must be pulling my leg. They can't be that stupid. And <laughs> so. Fellas, I'll explain what Rexall is. It's one of the world's foremost dispensers of pharmaceuticals. <laughs> Furthermore, it's that's one... Enough, that, that's enough, Harris. <laughs> Their little minds are loused up enough without your... <laughs> I'll explain. <clears throat> a number of years ago, a group of druggists formed a company. They needed a title to identify themselves. And after many months, they came up with a grand old name. You know what they called it? How does Mr. Harris keep them in line? Well, there's one way. He gets behind a curtain and says, Now hear this. Now hear this. This is Petrillo speaking. <laughs> does that work? Well, that depends. If their union dues is paid, they ignore that, too. This band, it's up to you to see that they play properly, even if you have to teach them to read music. Them guys know how to read music. And I'll show you. Artie, read what's on your music stand. Abby rents two dollars per day. <laughs> I mean the music. What does it say on the music? Shermer's book one for beginners. <laughs> Oh, this is ridiculous. Isn't there anyone in this orchestra who knows what he's doing? Yes, there is. There is one man. My concert master, Mr. Remley. <laughs> Remley? Why, that no-talent slob. Wait a minute. <laughs> now, just a minute, Mr. Scott. Don't knock Frankie. He's a pretty smart kid. He knows music. Oh, we'll soon find out. Remley, read that music you have in front of you. Say please. <laughs> All right, please read the music. What music? The sheet of paper you have in front of you. The one with the black dots. That's music? <laughs> I thought I was seeing spots in front of my eyes. <laughs> I've been having my glasses changed every week. Frankie, listen now, will you cut out the clowning? Now, stop kidding. Mm -hmm. Now, read your guitar part just the way I wrote it for you. <laughs> Very well, maestro. It says when you hear noises coming from the other instruments, you'll know the number has started. <laughs> Don't do nothing until the trombone player hits you in the back of the head. <laughs> Point, you count two, strum once, and put your guitar down before you get in trouble. <laughs> Harris, is that the way you write the music for them? Yeah, I do all my own arranging. <laughs> of course, a little tough with the violin section. They can't read English, and I gotta draw pictures. <laughs> yes. <laughs> No wonder these musicians don't know anything. They've got a leader who knows even less. If you learn to read music and play yourself, maybe... Now, wait a minute. Just a minute, sir. I'm not only a fine instrumentalist, but I read music fluently. You do, eh? Let's see you read this. Very well. It's in the key of D-flat, which has five flats. It's in the Alla Brave tempo with a fermata on the end chord, finishing with a big piatti. I'll be darned. He did it. I did it. 
Show the rest of us up. I'm not trying to show nobody up. I'm just gentlemen, trying to gentlemen, prove gentlemen, to the... please, please. I'm tired of all this bickering and I want it to stop right now. Oh, please, Mrs. Scott, control yourself. And nobody asked you to butt in. Oh! Oh, you oh. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Mrs. Harris. I didn't mean to shout at you. What's wrong, Mr. Scott? You've been irritable all morning. Yeah, what's up, Scotty? I hate to see you this way. Your usual miserable self. <laughs> I apologize, Mrs. Harris. I'm all upset. It's a personal problem at home. Your wife can't stand you, huh? Frank! <laughs> How can you say a thing like that about such a fine person as Mr. Scott? If he's having any trouble at home, it's because he can't stand his wife. She's probably a nag who spends all his money, runs around with us. Wait a minute, wait, wait a minute. I'm not having trouble with my wife. It's somebody else. Your girlfriend, huh? <laughs> no, no, we got long splendid. <laughs> I'm having trouble with my daughter, Marjorie. What's wrong? Well, as you know, she's only 17, and she's fallen in love with a man of 40. There's 23 years difference in their ages, and she wants to marry him. Well, what's so terrible about that? When I married Phil, there was 23 years difference in our ages. The ones? Yeah. I happen to like older women. <laughs> well, I, I don't mind the difference in their ages so much. It's just that this fellow is a fortune hunter and he's after Marjorie's money. She's got money, huh? <laughs> I think I can help you, Mr. Scott. When this greedy fortune hunter comes around tomorrow and I tell him that Marjorie is already married. But she isn't married. We're eloping in the morning. <laughs> you wouldn't object to your daughter marrying me, would you? No. No, I wouldn't object. I'd just rather see her dead, that's all. Yeah. Who cares what you think? Have Marjorie meet me at her bank and we'll leave from there. <laughs> You can send what we can't carry, so we'll... Oh, shut up! <laughs> I'm sorry I mentioned the whole thing. Goodbye. Wow. What's he sore about? I had a solution to his problem, but he wouldn't give me a chance to tell him... Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What are you doing, Artie? Put another nickel in In the Nickelodeon 
All I want is love and you and music, 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 music. I've been thinking about Mr. Scott's problem. You know, it's pretty serious. And I think we ought to help him. I know one thing. I wouldn't want my daughter married to a fortune hunter. Now you know how my father felt about you. <laughs> oh, honey, when I married you, I didn't know you had money. <laughs> By the time I found out, it was too late to back out, and I have suffered through it. <laughs> Say, Phil, I have an idea. All we have to do is make Marjorie forget this older man she's going with. I know that, but how? Well, let's find a young, handsome, clean-cut, typical American boy that she can fall in love with. Yeah, but after she falls in love with me, then what happens? (laughs) I wasn't talking about you. But, honey, will you listen to me? I'm the only one to make Margie forget this guy. If you remember, when I met her last year, she practically swooned over me. She had a terrific crush on me. That's right. The poor, weak-minded child did. <laughs> well, let's get over to the house and you can talk to her. Hey, Curly, what makes you think you'll be able to get Margie to forget this other guy? Are you kidding? What, are you kidding? <laughs> not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I'll make her forget him like that. Before I married Alice, she was going with Tyrone Power. Alice, tell him, how long did it take me to make you forget Tyrone? Ten years. <laughs> Ten? I've only known you eight years. You still have two years to go, dear. <laughs> and so, Mr. Scott, that's... Well, that's what we're doing over here. We want to help you. In short... As long as you're not capable of handling your family affairs yourself, we'll do it for you. That's very nice of you, Rimley. I appreciate your efforts in my behalf, and I'll thank you to keep your big fat nose out of my (laughs) business. Mr. Scott, uh, look, don't you want our help? Curly, don't ask him. Look, Scotty, we're going to help you. I don't want your help. You're going to get it whether you want it or not. Now get lost. We got work to do. Please, Frankie. Mr. Scott, very often children resent interference from their parents, and we thought, well, perhaps, you know, we might make Marjorie understand. That's right. Now, just let me talk to her for five minutes. That's all. Five little minutes. Now, where is she? She's in the den. Do you think you can influence her? Scotty, five minutes with me, and you won't be able to take her out of the house without a leash. (laughs) Excuse me. Oh, Filthy, here you go again, making a female happy. <laughs> Happens to be my business. <laughs> yes, sir, I hope seeing me again doesn't stagger the girl. <clears throat> Uh-oh, there she is. Uh, hiya, Margie. Hello, Curly. <laughs> <laughs> Got her on the ropes already. <laughs> I see, uh... You didn't forget me. How could I? I once had a terrific crush on you. Yeah, you did, didn't you? Wasn't I a silly little child? <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't say silly. Uh, discriminating is a better word. Perhaps, but at any rate, it's all over now. Is it, my dear? <laughs> I'm really in love. There's only one man for me, and that's Mr. Crail. <laughs> Crail? Is is his first name Clyde? Uh, Clyde Crail. <laughs> How do you like that? I always thought that was the name I made up. <laughs> Say, Margie, but look, honey, after knowing me, how could you even look at anyone else? Because Mr. Crail is more romantic than you. Oh, pull yourself together, kid. This Crail is just a preliminary boy. 
With me, you is messing with a main event. <laughs> Mr. Harris, I know you were quite a ladies' man in your day. <laughs> what do you mean, in my day? Well, Clyde is ever so much younger than you. He's only 40. <laughs> well, how old do you think I am? You must be at least 42. What do you mean? I'm... I'll settle for that. <laughs> why think about this older man when, when I'm available? But you're not available. You're married to Mrs. Harris. And now, if you'll excuse me, I must finish writing this letter to Clyde. Goodbye. Clyde, Clyde. The impossible has happened. Harris has been rebuffed. Oh, could I be losing my charm? No. <laughs> Poor kid must have astigmatism or something. Well, Phil, how did you do? Well, uh, well, practically had her in the boat, but she slipped the hook. <laughs> Losing your touch, huh, Curly? I guess you're not as seductive as you think you are. I am, too, and I'll prove it. It's just because I'm married. She's a nice kid, and she doesn't want to take me away from... Poor old Alice. <laughs> Look, I'll show you. Alice, all you got to do is to go in and tell Margie that you've given me up. I and ain't I... gonna do it. <laughs> Honey, it's to help the girl and watch your grammar. <laughs> We're just pretending. If you tell her you're giving me up, she'll be amenable to my approach. She'll think that amenable. <laughs> crazy to me, but if you think it'll work, I'll try it. Good. Now, Remley, you go inside and keep Scotty busy so he doesn't bother. Right. And Alice, all you have to do is to tell Margie that you're giving me up, and she'll take the cue, and the rest is going to be a cinch. Now, go ahead. Wait a minute, honey. Look. Leave the door ajar. I want to hear Marjorie pant when you tell her the news. Okay, dear. Hello, Marjorie. Hello, Mrs. Harris. What are you doing here? Well, I... I have some news that I know will interest you, and I came to tell you. You see, I'm leaving Mr. Harris. A very wise move. How <laughs> the kid's being subtle. Marjorie, you don't understand. I'm giving Mr. Harris up so you can have him. What would I want with him? She doesn't want to appear anxious. <laughs> now, look, dear, you needn't pretend with me. I know you want him. But I don't want him. You can keep him. I don't want to keep him. I'm giving him to you. <laughs> I don't want him. I wish they wouldn't fight over me like that. <laughs> I'm not worth it. Marjorie, please take him. But I don't... Look, look. I'll make you a sporting proposition. You can have Mr. Harris and 13 points. <laughs> <laughs> don't palm him off on me. Why are you so anxious to get rid of him? I've outgrown him. That's why I'm giving him to you. I've outgrown him, too. Hear them dames talk, you'd think I was an old girdle. <laughs> Marjorie, why don't you take him? He's too old to make any trouble. He'll just lie around the house. No. He'll make a wonderful watchdog. He barks when strangers come in. I'm sorry, Mrs. Harris, but I already have a dog. Bet he ain't got a pedigree like mine. Well, <laughs> oh, Marjorie, if you're not interested, I guess I'll run along. Well, Phil, Marjorie won't even take you I know, I know, I know. I told you. Watch, dog. I told you this wouldn't work. What we need is a nice boy her own age to take her mind off this other fellow. Phil. Phil, I know just the boy. Who? Julius. Julius? I'd rather see her go steady with Cecil the Seasick Sea Serpent. Now, Julius is a nice boy, and he's just about her age. But, Alice, don't, don't you... Don't argue. Go call him and tell him to come over here. Oh, all right. Curly, I don't get it. Why did you call Julius to come over? Well, it was my idea. I thought we could use Julius to lure her away from the other fellow. Fine bait would be kinder to throw her a hunk of doped horse meat. <laughs> Say, 
such a contrary kid. How'd you get him to come over? I appealed to his romantic side. I told him I want him to make love to a beautiful girl. And I certainly wish he'd hurry and come on... Well, it's about time you got here. Do you know what you're supposed to do? Sure. You told me over the phone that you want me to take a pretty blonde away from a no-good fortune hunter. That's right. Now get started. Okay. Step aside. Miss Faith, fly with me and I'll rescue you from the clutches of this money-man <laughs> Alice ain't the girl. It's Mr. Scott's daughter. Oh, now you're after her money. It's not me. <laughs> There's another guy after her money and we want oh, you to... Oh, Curly, what's the use? Marjorie won't even look at him. He's such an obnoxious little brat. As himself, yes. But I've got an idea. Now look, Julius, she likes my type. And I thought instead of being your usual repulsive character, that you could act like me. Oh, instead of being repulsive, you want me to be nauseated. <laughs> Never mind. I do this myself, but I'm a little old for Marjorie. But she loves my personality. She loves your personality? There's just one thing I want to know about this girl. What? How'd she get hurt? <laughs> Why should I get involved with this daffy thing? Now, she's not daffy. She's Mr. Scott's daughter, and she's a very nice girl. Please, Julia, do it for me. All right, Miss Fay, I'll do it for your sake. I'll... Julius, quiet. Here comes Marjorie. Now, remember, act just like me and you're a cinch. Okay. <clears throat> oh, Margie, hi. Uh, I want you to meet a young friend of ours. Uh, Miss Scott, this is Julius Abruzio. Hello, Julius. Oh, come with me to Alabama. Come and meet my dear old pappy. He's always boiled oh, so happy. And that's what I like about that sound. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me I don't act like that. All right, I'll tell you you don't. But you do. Marjorie, prepare yourself for a thrill. I'm taking you out tonight. Gee, you're so masterful. You ain't just beating your gums, Marjorie. <laughs> a new boy I just met. This is Julius Abruzio. Julius? You mean you and Julius... You said it, Dad! <laughs> sure, now that I'm practically your son-in-law... You are not my son-in-law! It's just a question of time. Now, the first thing I'm going to do when I become vice president in charge of the Rexall radio program is to cut down on expenses. Now, just a minute, young man. No to change our radio program. I know a way we can break Mr. Harris's contract. I don't care what you know about... You do, my son? <laughs> yeah, I know how we can get rid of Mr. Rumley, too. Well, let's go into the library and talk this over. Hey, Mr. Scott, don't listen to him. Julius, what are you doing to me? Now, just what did you have in mind, my boy? Hey, Keep talking, boy. I love your style.
Julius, do you really like Marjorie? Yes, she's wonderful. Now, wait a minute. Don't be too hasty, little pal. Margie's not for you. Just because she happens to have money, she's... Mr. Harris, do you think I'm the kind of a person who'd sell my soul for money? Well, no, I... You think I'd bother my affections for mercenary gain? No, I... You think I'm making love to this girl just so I can get my hands on her money? No. How do I have to phrase this to get him to say yes? Stay tuned for Escape next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Escape. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you Escape! Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight, we escape to a lonely lighthouse off the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence as we bring you again in response to hundreds of requests Three Skeleton Key, starring Vincent Price. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the lighthouse rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water. Gray-green scum dappled, warm as soup. And swarming with gigantic bat-like devilfish. Great violet schools of Portuguese man-o'-war. And yes, sharks, the big ones, the 15-footers. And as if this weren't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. A wind that had smelled the slow and frightful death that came one night to this bare black rock. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door And in you went And up Yes, up and up and round and round Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope Casks of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds and cartons and cans And up, and up, and up, round and round over the light storeroom was the food storeroom, and over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room, and over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty, big steel and bronze baby with the sun gleaming through the glass walls all about, bouncing blinding little beams off the big shining reflectors, glittering and refracting through her lenses, the whole gigantic bulk of her balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. She was a sweetheart of a light. And at night, she'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with her revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. And it wouldn't be bad, the other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down. You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind, and it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste, what a pair. Louis, he was head man, was a big fellow from the Basque country, black beard... Little hard black eyes and a pair of arms that I tell you those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was, and what word he let go was law. A silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get out of him was... Jean, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They want to talk too much. 
It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You, you're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they send me somebody... Who that was Louis. When he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down. Because August was the talkingest man I'd ever met. The talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Yes, indeed. Played in over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous horrible, the way we used to scare the audiences. I, I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand, yes? Gave it up completely. I really did. Couldn't stand it any It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers, and the big yellow stars, when out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, there it was. Master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled, Louis! Louis! Couldn't understand it. I waited for the light to come around again. had the glasses out. Now, I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. But why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Can't they see? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. Yeah, the square head. What is it? What is it? Watch north, northwest. I know. I know what it is. Huh? What? The Dutchman. The flying Dutchman. We did a play about her once. Oh, what a performance. You ghastly, gallian, hag-ridden, curse-driven, must on Shut and up, on. will you? She's loving. Yes. Sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. The crew left her for some reason or other. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust, and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, heeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to a pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief? She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? What? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? Hmm? This is impossible. Huh? Absolutely impossible. What? Here. Take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it you... I had to focus and then my breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet that looked like a gigantic fungus, but undulating. And on the masts and yards, the guys and all were hundreds, no thousands, no mi I don't know, an endless number of enormous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look. Chatterbox, give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. She's going to turn. She'd better turn soon. 
Suppose she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Where's all the conversation, August, huh? Here, want the glasses again? Want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? Turn, I say, I pray you, turn! She's cracking up. The rats! Look, on the water! Like a carpet! They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below. It's open. Come on. Down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Gracie, but hurry, hurry. Look. See them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at the millions. They smell us. Here they come. Uh, Close the door. Can't, can't. Yeah. Let me. Oh, move. He made it. Holy. That was close. One guy in. Look, there. Jenny! He's kicking. He's as big as a tiger. Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red, his teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us, hard and ravenous, and we fought him, fought that one rat all over the room. It was, oh, believe me, I do not exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Got him. We better get aloft. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louie, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass all about us. I could not see the sky. Nothing, nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling, hairy snouts, their teeth, the rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three, we stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly in the center of the classroom under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? What can we do? Take it easy, old man. Take it easy. I can't. I just can't. It won't do any good to stand here and shake. Uh, that's right. Anybody want a cigarette? Yes. Yes, I have one. Thank you. Good boy. We've got to keep calm about this thing. Here's a light. <laughs> yeah, they don't like the fire, do they? <laughs> Guess not. Give me another match. <laughs> you don't like that much, do you? Like don't rile them, August. <laughs> Give me some more matches. I'll strike them and strike them and strike them until they get scared and go away. They won't <laughs> go away. Not until... Not until what? Not until they've been fed. You can take just so much horror and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the class. They could see us and they could rush at us, but that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise. If only it had drowned some of them. Ships rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir, you cannot drown one of them. They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Yeah. Say, what's the time? Quarter six. You've got first watch, John. Right. Uh, wake me at ten. I will. Come along, Avis. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the racks. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and 
then lit the lamp. It caught them. Lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. Then I started the rotary motor. Life drove them mad as she swung slowly and smoothly about. She blinded them in the fierce stabbing bar of light, moving continually about of a turning, of a touching, of a moving around and around. And they twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light. Bright light moving and behind on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back, but you cannot help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you could not see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. Louie relieved me at ten, but I didn't get much sleep that night. And when I came up into the gallery early next morning... There stood August, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats, waving his arms and making a speech. I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelate, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of the Marechal into the nether parts. <laughs> Do not be frightened, little children. I will he not hurt turning. you. I much. stood staring at him, horror-struck. But he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Ah, another one. A latecomer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. August, Move stop over it, there. Stop it. Let the gentleman be but seated. But he didn't. Come, come. He went on, bowing and scraping to the rats, his big blue eyes rolling and winking, his wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arm. He looked at me like a child. And then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below, go on. Oh, very well, then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes. Sounds horrible. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> We could get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away trying to get at our eyes. Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall 110 feet to the surf below. Sharks. They're eating them. Yeah, the sharks are our friends. Yeah, I'll get another bunch together. Yeah, my beauty. That's it. I love kill each other. There they go. Auguste joined in, too. Oh, very ingenious, Auguste. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats. It went on all day. And then I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. Couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp and went to the window. Even as I looked at it, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, Louis, come uh, quick. What? What is it? They found a way in. I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy bodies cutting against the other side as the window gave way. That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. What was that? I don't know. 
It came from below. The storeroom window. Uh, They're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louie with the other. It had ripped his hand open, and the blood was pouring all over the place. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung, and got him. My hand! He got my hand! That's both of them, Louie. I'll, I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my... My blood, I'm bleeding. Now, don't worry about it, Louie. Here, look. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. There, now. It's not bad, just the flesh. Then I became conscious of another new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood fascinated. Even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through Louis, Louis, we've got to go up. Next level was the middle quarters in the kitchen. I slammed the trap door there, too. But it, too, was wood. Oh, my blood. What are we going to do? Hell no. We'll be through this one in a moment. The gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. We made it. lay across the trapdoor exhausted, while below us the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. The hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. (laughs) Would you like to come in, my beauty? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in with all. August was standing <laughs> by the glass, and in one hand he held a wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet, slowly, very slowly, tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder. Oh. I found a coil of wire in the tool kit and I trussed him up. Fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company, and all about watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. We had only one way of summoning them, and that was to shoot off distress rockets, but the rockets were four floors below. And even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay, thirst-tormented, starving, waiting, waiting, and the following night, I again tended the light, but the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted, and quite suddenly, about midnight, the light went out. There's nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing... From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. When I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about us. Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. And then, the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. 
and I heard it. And then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently at us. The light was out. They didn't know. I wanted to open the windows to call out to them, to warn them somehow, but I was afraid. What if, what if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. Grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet, was he a passenger or crewman off watch, didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's the story. The sun came up and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. Auguste, insane asylum, he never recovered. And Louis, they took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Well, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. No, no mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse, I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes when I see a strange vessel approaching, I get a little nervous, sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tadeus, adapted for radio by James Poe and starring Vincent Price as Jean. Supporting Mr. Price were Harry Bartell as August and Jeff Corey as Louis. Sound effects on Three Skeleton Key, created by Cliff Thorsness and executed today by Mr. Thorsness, Gus Bays, and Jack Sixsmith, have been awarded the best of the year by Radio and Television Life magazine. Harry Essman was at the control panel, and special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week... You are swimming for your life in the dangerous waters off the Florida Gulf Coast about to be smashed by a launch carrying a vicious criminal who must kill you or die himself. And on shore 500 yards away, the police are waiting to arrest you for murder. And there can be no escape. Next week, we escape with an exciting tale of temptation and death on the Gulf Coast of Florida as John and Gwen Bagney tell it in Danger at Matagumba. Goodbye, then, until the same time next week when once again we offer you Escape. A patch of weeds, a boxer's biography, and a mild, lukewarm bath. They're all clues that lead the police of Jackson, Michigan, to a killer in the gangbuster story on CBS this Saturday night. It's the case of the double push to be heard on most of these same CBS stations this Saturday night. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Gunsmoke, followed by The Life of Riley. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell and Paul Stringer for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. 
Have a great evening. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.